0: Before we open the text, let me, let me just share with you. Last weekend, I traveled to Arizona to officiate a wedding. And if you, uh, if you don't know, I lived in Arizona for a long time. I lived in Arizona for 27 years before the Lord called us here to Chicago back in 2010. And I, I haven't gone back very often. In fact, I, I think in the eight and a half years since I've been here, I think that was my third time back. Um, so very very rarely have I been able to, to go back, and the thing that was interesting is the first couple of times I went back, um, I was mostly I was mostly impressed with how much I really love Chicago. Um, this was the first time that I went back, and I actually felt a little bit nostalgic about it. You know, we were we were driving around uh, Phoenix, you know, the Scottsdale area where we, we my wife and I both grew up on Friday, and then we got to drive up to Flagstaff, which is two hours north and, and a totally different topography, pine trees, 8,000 feet up, uh, much cooler weather, and, uh, and then come back through Sedona, which if you've never seen or been there, you, you have to do that, it's a bucket lister. It's, it's some of the most beautiful country, I think, in the world. Uh, but I realized as we were doing this traveling over the course of last weekend, that I I miss the beauty of the desert, I miss it. I mean, it, it, there's something about it that just really is striking. Not the heat, by the way. That I don't miss. It was like, I think 111 on Friday. Didn't miss that. Um, but the mountains, and the again the the just the diversity of the topography, the climates that are just unique to Arizona. Uh, I felt I felt a lot of nostalgia, and I was. I was trying to figure out kind of what was going on in my, in my heart and my mind as that was happening, and I think what really gripped me was just the familiarity of it all. That's specific to me. I grew up there, right? Arizona is my heritage. Uh, and the familiarity of that, I think, is what was really was kind of was hitting me. Um, you know, we have, we have associations, don't we, with, with memories. There's associations of space of surrounding of smells and those kinds of things and and when you're around that you've all experienced that you you have those associations there can be something very powerful especially as it roots to uh, to memories or things that shape you so i was experiencing that and and it was weird because i actually started to imagine myself like returning there someday it was that strong that sense of familiarity now if i having said that i don't want to worry any of you cuz I'm not, I'm not planning to go back uh, if, if, if at all anytime soon. In fact, when we got back to Chicago, just the drive from Midway up Lakeshore Drive here cured me of it. <laughs> I was like, I I I really, this is where the Lord, I love this place. So don't don't worry that I said that. But but I, I just want you to, know, I was experiencing that and and I'm relaying that to you because it it helped me uh, to relate to the passage that I was studying this week. That that sense of nostalgia that I was experiencing. I think that's what uh, was going on with the the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews. So as the writer of the Hebrews is, is writing to them, he's he's addressing this this sense of nostalgia, the sense of longing for where they where they came from that uh, apparently they were experiencing and he was certainly picking up on. They were Christians Right. The the recipients of this letter are, are are Christians, but they were ethnically Jewish converts, right? So they had grown up in the the Jewish synagogues. They had grown up with the, the traditions and the rituals of the of the law and synagogue worship and, and all of that stuff. And so as the writer is, is writing to them and, and addressing what appears to be this longing in their part, wanting to, to go back to the familiarity of those things, he's specifically, in the passage that we're looking at today, addressing their longings for the ministry of the Jewish priesthood. All right? Now again, they were, they were tempted to return to what the Lord had called them away from. And, and, and sort of much like me last weekend, they needed to be reminded that, look, know what the Lord has called you now to is better. All right. That's, that's the, the gist of the passage here. And what the Lord has called them to is Jesus. Jesus is better. Jesus, as the writer of the Hebrews reminds us and them, is the greater high priest. So look with me at the text. Uh, chapter seven, we're going to start in verse 26. I'll put it up here on the screen for you. 7:26 through28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. He's talking about Jesus. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for first his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. All right. So he's comparing the priestly ministry of the high priests and the priesthood of the Old Testament with the, the greater priesthood of Jesus. Now, since we're not a Jewish audience, uh, I don't think any of, hardly any of us have a Jewish background, it's, it's important for us to get a quick explanation of the role of the Old Testament priesthood and an understanding of where that ministry took place in the, in the tabernacle, the Jewish tabernacle, later the, the temple Right. Uh, let's 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 talk about that a little bit so we can relate to what he's trying to say here. Uh, the priests made offerings to God in the tabernacle or in the temple for the sins of Israel. That was the primary role. A priest, of course, is a is a mediator. Uh, a priest acts as a go between between a holy God and a sinful people. And the primary way that that was done there was, lots of, there was lots of ways in which that mediatorial role was carried out, but the primary way was through the sacrifices and primarily through the offerings of slain animals. Uh, the animals' sacrifices were there to be substitutionary deaths for the people. The wages of sin is what? Death, right? So, so there, the Bible tells us, and in fact we'll look at it here in, in, in Hebrews, that, that apart from death, apart from the shedding of blood... There's no forgiveness of sins. That's the wage. So, so the, the God in His grace had provided this sacrificial system where he would, he would transfer that guilt to the substitute. And so that animal sacrifice was there to be a, an offering to satisfy the justice of God, but to be a gracious offering that would give forgiveness uh, for the people, right? Right? So, so we see that actually uh, take place in chapter nine. If you want to turn over to chapter nine, look at verse nineteen, and it explains a little bit about that role. Chapter nine, verse nineteen: For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself. And also all the people saying, "This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you." And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So he's explaining what the what that that offering looked like. The priest would take the blood of the slain animal, and they would would sprinkle. The people would sprinkle. Inside the, the tabernacle and, and sprinkle all of the different elements there as that that picture of the blood covering the sin, uh, providing redemption for the people. Now here's the thing, and as he tells us here in chapter seven and eight, because the priests were representative of the people before a holy God, the priests then had to have they had to go through great efforts to be clean to be spiritually and ceremonially clean. They had, to, they had to cleanse themselves. They had to keep themselves pure. They wore special garments. They performed various rituals, all designed to provide that, that cleanliness so that they could go before the presence of the glory of God and intercede for the people. And it was in the tabernacle under Moses and later the temple that, that was the place in which the, the most important offerings were made. And that's because that's where the presence of God, that's where the glory of God dwelt in a place called the most holy place. And we studied that. Those of you who've been around a little while, we went through the book of Exodus recently and we looked a lot at how they built that tabernacle and what the symbols of the tabernacle were. And I'll I'll put up a slide that I put up back then. This is what that tabernacle would have looked like under Moses. And Hebrews 9 gives an explanation of the worship that occurred there led by the priesthood. So again, look at chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 1 this time. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the Holy Place. Now, look up for a second. Let me just show you. That's this part right here, right? This is the first section called the Holy Place. You got the lampstand, you got the bread of the presence, the altar of incense. This part here is what he's talking about. Keep reading. It's called the, the Most Holy Place. And then behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides. "...with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant." So again, look. This is, what, this is the second section here. you got the second curtain and the most holy place. That's the Ark of the Covenant here, again, which held all of those different items that we just read about. "...and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail." All right, so this is just a, 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 oops, a visual representation of, of what he's just talking about. You can, you can kind of barely see. These are the cherubim that were over that, that ark on the lid and the mercy seat. This is where the glory of God dwelled. And this is where ultimately the high priest would go in and make the, the ultimate sacrifice, uh, the day of atonement, and make the sacrifices for all the, all the nation of Israel. Keep reading verse 6. which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. All right? So you get this, this idea here that you've got something that's temporary. This, this, this can, this can go on for a while and for a time. And you've got these incredible symbols. You've got, you've got this eastward facing opening with, with this royal curtain. You're entering into the throne, the, the holy place, the royal seat of God. You've got the, this regular holy place where the priest can regularly come in and do offerings. Then you've got this very, very holy place, the most holy place where only the high priest can go in. Again, you see the, the royal curtains there. They're, they're, they're purple, that symbols royalty, but they're also super thick and the, it, it symbolizes this great barrier between us and God. No one can go into that place except the high priest once a year as a mediator. That's the picture of the o- Old Testament uh, priesthood and the Old Testament tabernacle. Right Now what the writer of Hebrews is saying, now that you have a, a sense of what they already knew, what the writer, writer of Hebrews is saying to them Back in our passage for today is all of this, all of this is great, but Jesus is greater. Look back at chapter 8. And this is our first actual sermon point for the day. The Old Testament priesthood is a shadow. Jesus is the reality. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, excuse me, as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better Since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. All right, the main idea here is this everything about the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood was meant to point to a greater glory to come. That's the main idea. Everything about that picture that we saw in the whole system was meant to point to a greater reality to come. A key verse is the beginning of verse 5. They, the priests, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. It was all a copy and a shadow. In other words, there's a reality. There's there's a real thing, and then there's a shadow of that thing, right? The, 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 The shadow has the form of the real thing, but it's not the real thing. The, the, the shadow has, it will give you a sense of the nearness of the real thing. But it's, it's not the real thing in and of itself. I think you all understand that. But let me, let me try to make that like, really sink into you. Because I know it's, it's 1130-ish. You're probably starting to think a little bit about lunch. All right? So as you're thinking about lunch, or if I'm starting to make you think about lunch, which is kind of my intent, imagine that we were walking down the sidewalk here and we're, we're starting to think, man, it would be really great to have a hamburger for lunch. And we move on towards Hamburger Mary's on Clark Street over here. And as we get close to the restaurant, all of a sudden, along one of the brick walls, we see the shadow of a hamburger, right? And as you're looking at the shadow of the hamburger, you can, you can see, you can make out, like, I can see the form of that top bun. I can see the, the kind of the, the jagged edges of the lettuce, Right. The to- I know the tomatoes in there somewhere. There's probably a big juicy patty in there with another bun on the bottom, right? You you get you're looking at the shadow and you can you can sense the nearness of this thing. You see the reality of it, but you're not really seeing the reality of it, right? You you but it's enough to get you to sort of to 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 want and desire the burger, right? And so as that begins to whet your appetite, as that begins to, to do what it's it sort of intended to do to make you start to think for and long for the real thing, all of a sudden you see the real thing. And you think, oh, the shadow. The shadow. Give me the burger. Right? Now, I know that's a really silly and simple analogy, but, but that's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. He look, everything that you've, you've done in the past, it pointed to something. It, it, it had the form. It was there. It, it, it showed you something of the nearness of it. It, 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 it wet your appetite for what was to come. But ultimately, it was a shadow. And the reality was far better than the shadow. And the reality is Jesus Christ. Remember the, the layout of the, te- the tabernacle and the temple. Remember the furnishings that were there. What, why are they a shadow? What are they a shadow of? Well, think about this for a minute. Try to get that. In fact, let me, let me see if I can put it back up for you to ponder. Consider what's, what's going on there. They are, in fact, heaven-like. The, the layout, the design of all this was, was, was heaven-like. They're, they're pictures, in fact, of the new heaven and the new earth. If you look at the, the lampstand that's here in the holy place, that lampstand is, is, is a picture. It's representative of the tree of life. Right, and you see the eastward-facing opening. It's, It's a reminder to us that because of the sin of Adam and Eve, we were cast east of Eden, and we're longing to go back. We're longing to get back into the presence of the God whose presence we're no longer in because of sin. We see again the curtains here, and the curtains are a reminder of of His holiness and His royalty, but also a reminder of that great gap. Between us and God. By the way, those curtains, there's so much fabric in those curtains, they were about three feet thick. So the picture there would have been very, very real, right? As you're up against that curtain. Like there's 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 weight and distance between us. And again, only the high priest was able to go in there. And but once a year, a mediator who was spiritually clean is the only one who could represent us there. And the thing is, is that that mediator in the Old Testament had to not only make sacrifices for us, but had to make sacrifices for himself. Because ultimately, he wasn't the sinless mediator. He was a man who was sinful just like us. And so the tabernacle is a copy of the greater reality. You see that in in verse 5 there of chapter 8. As he says, that Moses as he was about to erect this tent, was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So this isn't just an arbitrary design. This was God's design given to Moses to be replicated. He wanted them to build something that, that, that was in the design of something only God knew what it looked like. Heaven. This, this idea of, of, of Eden. None of them had been there. He gave them this very specific pattern and wanted them to build it that's a quote from exodus 25 verse 40. and the priesthood is is similarly uh, you know a shadow it, it's 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 a copy and a, and a and not the real thing the, the priests are, are ceremonially clean again but but they're still sinners who need sacrifices for themselves their their ministry though effective was temporarily effective but not ultimately effective they they awaited a better covenant we see that There in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So the writer of the letter is saying this to the people. Why would you want to go back to shadow worship when you have the real thing? Why would you want to go back when you have The real thing. The real thing has finally arrived. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 8. The point, what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We have a minister in the holy places in not this tent, but the true tent. The one that the Lord set up. Not one that man has set up. So he's saying to them, look, Jesus is the true and better high priest because Jesus' ministry isn't in the copy of heaven. His ministry is in heaven itself, the real deal, right now. And it's not temporary. It's permanent, and it's finished because he doesn't leave the throne room. He doesn't just get to go in there once a year and, and make this offering. He stays there. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He sat down in the room. And no earthly priest could ever say that. And Jesus is the greater high priest because, as we see here in verse 6, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. So what are the guarantees of the better promise? That's what he wants them to see. Sorry for the burger again. Second point. Four reasons why Jesus is the greater high priest. He's saying, look, this this has all been enacted on better promises. What's, What's the guarantee of the better promises? Four reasons why Jesus is the greater high priest. Going back to the passage that we started with In chapter 7, verse 26. And the first one is this. Jesus is unstained by sin. He has no need to offer sacrifices for himself. Look back again at verse 26 of chapter 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Again, no other priest could say that. Nobody could say that. Even the most devout of the priests were still transgressors of the law. And so again, they went through this exhaustive uh, uh, ritual cleansing, this exhaustive work to to make the outside of themselves clean and pure so that they could stand in the presence of a holy God, but they could never clean the inside. They could never get down to the innermost being of their sinfulness. And why not? Well, because who but God alone can cleanse the human heart? And that's why the writer saying but Jesus is superior. Though he's fully human and was tempted to sin in every way, he's also fully God and possesses that inward moral purity and sinless perfection. He never sinned. He never transgressed the law. So unlike the priests who had to make offerings for themselves, Jesus has no need to do that. That's the first reason why he's superior. In fact, secondly, Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice for us. Verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once-for-all when he offered up himself. That's an amazing truth. Because he was sinless, He didn't have to offer sacrifices for himself, but but instead could offer himself as the sacrifice. That's an amazing truth. Never in a million years would it have occurred to any of the other priests that they could actually be the sacrifice. Never. But Jesus changed all that. He didn't need a sacrifice for himself he became a sacrifice in himself. And that once-for-all nature of that sacrifice is almost too amazing to grasp. Remember, that they, they were, there were daily offerings. There was the annual offering that had to be repeated and repeated. And this, this idea that he could do one time and it would be all-encompassing. It's almost too amazing to grasp. And yet we get to marvel at the reality of it and the effectiveness of that. Remember again the the, the curtains I mentioned in the tabernacle and the temple being three feet thick. I mean that picture of the gap that separates us from God. This immense gap and yet Jesus doesn't just enter through the curtain does he? He tears it. He tears it away. When Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross was made, listen to what Matthew 27 says about it. It says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and rocks split. I mean, this was effective ministry, effective sacrifice. And the barrier, the immense barrier between a holy God and sinful mankind was done away with forever. No more sacrifices are ever needed. That's amazing. Thirdly, Jesus is not a priest by law, but a son by oath. Verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. The oath that he's referring to here is the oath in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, verse 4, you, you don't have to turn there, just listen. It says this David is saying, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that oath, this, this declaration that, that you, who, the one that, G, that David is talking about and to, which we'll find in just a few verses here, is the Messiah. He's saying, your your priesthood lasts forever. It's different. And and, and David is is well after the law was given, right? David knows the law. He understands the way that the priests were appointed, that they were in the line of of Aaron and Levi. He understands all that. And he's saying, you're going to be different. We're going to look at this in more detail next time. But he says, "This this is a different kind of priesthood. You're not appointed in that line. That line is is, is temporal. You're a priest forever, and and you're you're in the order of Melchizedek, which wasn't the line of Aaron. In fact, Melchizedek was a king who was a priest, and the and the and the and the psalmist here, David, is going. I think I'm putting the pieces together here. There's something different about the way that the priesthood of the Messiah is going to operate. Now, again, I'll explain that far more detail over the next couple of weeks when we look at that. Uh, that that passage specifically. But the the idea here is that the oath comes after the law was given, the law that established the Old Testament priesthood, and it points, even in the Old Testament, it's pointing to the end of the law as a ritual system. David's going, "I'm, I'm seeing a day where this is going to be different. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is reminding the readers here, and he's reminding us that even the Old Testament foresaw that something better was coming. That something was going to replace the current system. And so the oath is spoken to the Messiah. Again, in Psalm 110, verse 1, David says, The Lord, the Father, said to my Lord, the Son, sit at my right hand. So the final high priest is the Messiah. He's the Son of God in the order of Melchizedek, but certainly not in the order of Levi not in the order of Aaron, like the Jewish priesthood. And the writer's saying, see, there's there's something different. Jesus was established and installed by an oath, not by the law, which is passing away. So remember that, readers. It's passing away. Something new is here. And fourthly, he says to them, Jesus has a perfect ministry that lasts forever. That's the end of verse 28. The law... Uh, uh, appoints the priests, but this one was appointed as a son who has been made perfect forever. So he's saying, look, because Jesus is at the Father's right side, his priestly function is always being performed. It's always being performed. Not once a year, but every moment of every day. At the end of the verse there, the oath appoints a son made perfect forever. We're, we're reminded that, that forever, Jesus never dies. He never dies. He never has to be replaced. His is an indestructible life. This, this priesthood of Jesus, the one who prays for us, the one who is sympathetic with us, it has been perfected forever. Not for a decade or a century or a millennium but forever. John Piper says this. I I like the way he says this. He says, the great and overarching point of this text at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 is that we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who came into the world as the Son of God, who lived a sinless life, who offered Himself as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of the people, He rose to everlasting life at the right hand of the majesty of God and there He loves us and prays for us and bids us draw near to God through Him. He didn't fit into the old system of priestly sacrifices. He came to fulfill it and to end it because He is the reality whereas they were the copy. They were the shadow. And when the reality comes, the shadow passes away. Let me give you just two applications. The first one is this. That's the core of our faith. That, that, the priestly ministry of Jesus that we just described, that's the core of the good news of the gospel. Jesus has come and done once for all, once for all, what, what always needed to be done for us. And it, it's the perfect ministry of our forgiveness, of our reconciliation to God. We, we can't and don't need to continually make sacrificial offerings that are, that are just temporary in their effect. We don't have to, to wonder if the effect is sort of worn off and is it time to go back and do it again? Is there, are, there, are there unknown or unintentional or unconfessed things that, that we, we, we are sort of left uncovered by the blood that someone's got to go back in there and, and mediate for us? We don't have to do that anymore because Jesus has come and, 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 and perfected the ministry. His death and resurrection are eternally efficacious. That's the core of the good news. That, that's what we celebrate every Sunday as we come together and, and, and we, we sing and, and we praise and, and we, we study this word. It's, it's all around the, this root truth that in Jesus Christ, we can confidently know our sins are forgiven. And he won't be replaced. He won't die. He's, he's right there right now sitting at the Father's right hand advocating for us. And he always will be. That's awesome. So, so the first application is just to, to, to recognize that this understanding is fundamental to our understanding of the gospel. Do you know and believe this, that Jesus Christ's finished work is finished? And that your faith in him, your faith in him appropriates that finished work to you in such a way that you should be rock confident in your standing before a holy God. Now, the reason I want to bring that up is because I, I think most of us as Christians can can articulate that and can say, yeah, I know we can look back to his finished work on the cross and know that, like, that, that, that at that moment my sins were forgiven. And I think we often will live our lives in such a way that, that we're constantly looking back to that moment. But I wonder if we're cognitively aware that as we live our daily lives moment by moment, from here on out, that that ministry wasn't just finished back there, but continues. So when you live your life and you're reminded of your, your continual need for that forgiveness, because you sin, you sin every day, right? Are you cognitively aware that the finished, effective work of Jesus is not just finished but continuing so that even right now, as you sin, he's seated at the right hand of the Father advocating for you and telling you, I covered that. Do you believe that? I, I think I think we can often forget that. We, we We sort of anchor ourselves in something that happened, but we forget to appropriate it to ourselves every day. To live in light of the truth of the gospel every day. His ministry continues. Which is kind of a radical paradox because it's it's done. But it continues. That's the first application. It's fundamental to the gospel. Jesus is the Savior we need. And the second application is this is that it's also instructive for our worship to understand this 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 part of Jesus's being this this part of his personhood and nature and ministry the the great high priest that he is it's instructive for worship because Jesus is the universal object of our worship and i say that because remember how i started off with that you know my story about being in arizona and that that, that familiarity that sort of drew me in. And I think that's, the, that's a way we can often live our Christian lives as well, where we, like the people here, remember, they're Christians, and they, they have this good news, but, but for some reason, rather than anchoring their, their joy and their hope in the person and work of Jesus, they're longing for the familiarity of external forms. So they're wanting to go back to the, to the ritual. They're wanting to go back to these pictures, these shadows, rather than be fully satisfied with the, with the arrival of the reality. You think, why would you do that? I mean, I just showed you a hamburger. How many of you are going to, if I give you choice A and B, you can take the burger or you can take the shadow. How many of you are going to take the shadow when you're hungry? I hope, I hope none of you, right? Seems silly to go back. And yet, and yet we're tempted to do that so often because for whatever reasons, we, we forget the, the beauty and, the, and again, the, the satisfaction that comes from just anchoring our, our faith and our standing before God and our joy and our contentment in the person of Jesus Christ, rather than sometimes the external forms that point us to him but aren't really him, which isn't to diminish their importance. External forms are good. We have external forms. We we gather in a, in a sanctuary. Most churches do, right? And we we have these services, and we we sing songs, and and we've got a pulpit, and we we have you know somebody who gets up here and, and teaches from the word. And I mean, all those are all great things, right? And the kinds of the kinds of songs that we sing, we we all have preferences about those, don't we, right? And some sometimes that you know we we get we get kind of bent on on a certain kind of form of music because again, it's familiar to us. That's how I connect with God. And and we allow those things which are good and they're pointers to the reality to become for us the thing that we want to cling to. Somehow over the, the reality itself. And so you're looking for your spiritual sustenance in the external forms that are meant to point you to the one in whom your sustenance can really be found. So it's instructive for worship. And I say Jesus is the universal object of worship because I think what he's, what the writer here is making explicit to the Hebrew people is that those externals of your past, the synagogue worship, the priesthood, all the functions of the Old Testament, they were pointers for you. But, but in the New Testament, those things aren't given any weight. In other words, we're not instructed in the New Testament to worship Jesus in a particular way. All we're instructed in the New Testament is to worship Jesus. Right? Just to worship Jesus. And, and, and I think there's a there's a very significant reason for that, and that is because the Old Testament was sort of this come and see, and it was it was revolving around a, a specific people, a specific culture, a specific ethnicity in the, in, the, in the Hebrew people. But in the New Testament, that salvation has been graciously given to the world. And so the cultural forms. And all the traditions and the familiarities of one people can never transfer over to other people's. But what can always is the universal nature of the person of Jesus, the creator and the savior of the world. And so it's, it's a good reminder for us, right, that we have a missional faith We have a missional proclamation. The gospel is missional in that we can't and shouldn't ever be drawn back to the familiarity of externals when we've been given the reality of the Savior. And you can externally worship Him in lots of different ways, and that's all fine and good, but don't miss the Savior for the forms. And that's the message He's trying to give to them as well. You have the real deal. Let your pictures point you to him, but point to him. Trust in him. Worship him. Those things, they pointed to something that was effective, but in and of themselves, they're not effective. They're only effective to the extent that they point to the one who's effective. Jesus. So let's worship Jesus for who he is. Father, thank you for your word and for this important reminder That Jesus is the great high priest we need. That there is no other that we need. There is nothing else that we need. We just need Him. And I pray that you would establish our joy as we learn what it means to just cling to Him and to Him alone. And in that, Lord, I'm I'm not asking to prescribe or, or or to deny any particular kinds of forms I'm, I'm thankful for our services and i'm thankful for our songs and i'm thankful for our traditions and all the things that help point us to you but i i do i do fear lord that sometimes that we we put our our focus on the externals and we miss jesus and we don't want to miss jesus lord we want to see him and worship him and know him for all that he is and be freed up then to, to share Him with, with others without the, the constraints of those external forms. Help us to believe that Jesus can meet us right where we are. That Jesus isn't limited to a, a box of forms. He's for the world. So give us a heart not only to worship Him for who He is, but to share Him with everybody to take Him to the world, to take Him throughout our neighborhood, to to, to be open to to all forms of expression because we're, we're mostly concerned with are we worshiping Jesus and we're satisfied with Him? So fill us with that satisfaction. Remind my brothers and sisters here that they have a Savior whose ministry is both finished and continual. And it's... It's effective everywhere, every time, in every way. Hallelujah. We pray that in his name. Amen.